Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. Well, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series in Galatians. It's a series, this, this part of the series, we've, we've bannered it, we've put a title over this part of the series called Good News, which is just a, a translation of the word gospel. The word gospel, as it goes forth into the world, when it's preached, when it's lived as it truly is, is good news. That's what it is. And so that's what we're, we're looking at in this series today. Specifically, we're, we're looking at the fact that good news, uh, in good news, divisive tribalism is done, or is, is done. When the gospel reaches people, when it reaches communities, when it reaches cities and people groups, that divisive tribalism comes to an end. So we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 21. You can turn there now in your Bible or in your app if you've got a, a, a digital version. But before we do that, I want to tell you a story. Uh, actually, two stories that are the background. These stories precede the story that we're going to read in Galatians. They, they happened some, uh, well, several years earlier. And they become the backbone for understanding what happens in today's passage. If you understand the two stories I'm about to tell you, you can read Galatians 2 on your own and and to a much better degree, understand what's being said, what's happening. So first of all, um, the first story comes in Acts chapter 10, uh, verses uh, 1 through eleven eighteen. And you don't need to turn there. You can if you want, but I'm just going to narrate the story. So this story that happens uh, previous to the story we're going to read in Galatians today involves two human characters. Uh, the first character is a Roman centurion uh, named Cornelius a Roman centurion named Cornelius. He lives in the town of Caesarea, which is a, a coastal town on the northern coast of Israel. And, uh, and because he's a Roman centurion, here's what that means. It means he's a Gentile, non-Jewish, and he's a commander of the Roman army that is currently occupying Israel, which means when he came to Israel, he came as a foreigner. He came as someone who did not know or worship Israel's God, he came actually as one of the oppressing agents leading the army that was there to oppress and occupy the people of Israel. So, so he's, a, he's, a, he's not just a, a foreigner, he's, a, he's actually an enemy. And yet at some point in his stay there in Israel, he's begun to respond to the God of Israel. He's had some sort of, some sort of awakening to where he now worships the God of Israel, prays to the God of Israel. He doesn't know anything about Jesus but he's what we would call in the New Testament a God-fearer, which means somebody who's not practicing the Jewish faith, but they worship the God of Israel. So that's him. One day he's praying in his town of Caesarea. He's praying, and he has a vision in which an angel appears to him and says, uh, go find this man named Peter who's living in Joppa. Joppa was a coastal town a little bit further south, about 30 miles to the south. Peter's currently living in, uh, in Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. Go and ask for him and, and tell him to come to you immediately. So Cornelius is told exactly where to find Peter. 
He's just not told why he's supposed to send for him. Just go get this guy, right? So meanwhile, our other character in the story is who? Peter, you guys are sharp. <laughs> kind of awake. Our other story next are the characters, Peter. He is, in fact, staying with Joppa at the house of Simon the Tanner. On this particular day, he's on the rooftop of the house. Think kind of like a, a deck on the top of the house. And it's around noon, and he's waiting for lunch. He's hungry. The text actually says in, in Greek that he's hangry. And he's, he's waiting for lunch and is being prepared downstairs by his hosts. And as he's waiting, he too has a vision. Only his vision is not of an, of an angel. It's of a sheet being lowered down from heaven. Okay, not, not a sheet of paper, but like a, a bed sheet. And he can see that there's something in the sheet. It's being lowered, lowered down by all four corners. And so he's, in his vision, he's, he's peeking to see what's in the sheet. He's hungry. He's hoping it's food. His appetite, he's probably thinking of hummus, pita chips, Kalamata olives, right? He's thinking of something along those lines. But when the sheet lowers down to where he can see it, he sees inside of it, and what he sees are all kinds of beasts. He sees animals, he sees reptiles, he sees birds. And then he hears a voice saying, Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Arise, Peter, kill and eat. Peter responds to this as if it's a test. This is what he says. He says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or is unclean. Okay? I've never eaten anything common or unclean. So here's the background to this. Here's a little bit of background just to understand what's happening in, a, in this first century Jewish context. Uh, there are dietary laws that were given to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai some 1,500 years previously. Okay? And so I would put the cross-reference there. It's Leviticus 11, 1 through 23. You can read that. It's the primary place that describes here's animals and, and reptiles and beasts that are clean, and here's ones that are unclean. And so for some 1,500 years, these dietary restrictions were deeply ingrained in the Jewish people as part of their identity, part of their culture, part of their obedience to God. It was actually an act of worship to submit to God's dietary restrictions on them. It was an act of worship. And it distinguished them as a people set apart from all other nations for the purpose that they were to, to reflect God to the world in a way that was unique. So, so this is deeply ingrained in Peter, and so it's got religious convictions for him. And so when he sees this, he says, no way. He thinks it's a test. He says, no, I, I've never done that, Lord. But it's not a test. When Peter responds, by no means, Lord, the voice from heaven responds and says this. Listen to this. What God has made clean, do not call common. What God has made clean, do not call common. That scene gets repeated two more times. Peter goes through his part. The voice says its part. And then the sheet vanishes up into heaven, leaving Peter sitting there going, what was that? You ever had one of those dreams where you wake up and you're like, what was that? That's the moment Peter's having when there's, suddenly there's a knock downstairs on the door. The ring doorbell goes off. Kind of has that chime, right? He knows that somebody's at the door. And at that moment, the Holy Spirit speaks to Peter and says, there are three men who have come here to ask you to come with them to another town. Go with them. Here's what, actually, here's, let me read you the exact text. God's Spirit tells Peter there are three men at the door. He is to go without hesitation. Go without hesitation. So he goes down. He meets the guys at the door. He asks them why they've come. 
They explain that they've been sent by Cornelius. They tell him about Cornelius' vision. And he agrees goes to go with them. They, they, they stay the night, and then he goes with them the next day because it's a 30-mile journey. So the next day, they get up, and he goes, and he takes some Jewish believers with him. He takes some Jewish Christians with him on this trip to visit this Gentile commander and his household. Peter arrives to find a whole household of Gentiles who are spiritually hungry seekers. He arrives and he finds that Cornelius is not just there waiting for Peter himself. Cornelius has gathered all of his family and all of his close friends. And he says, this guy's coming with a message from God. Peter leads with this. So Peter walks in the door. Listen to this. This is what Peter leads with. Imagine if you invite somebody to your home. You've gathered a bunch of people and said, I, I want you to come. I've got this really important message that we all need to hear. And this is what the guy leads with. You know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has showed me that I should no longer think of anyone as common or unclean. So I came without objection as soon as I was sent for you. Now tell me why you sent for me. So Cornelius recounts his vision and he ends with, well, now we're all here waiting before God to hear the message the Lord has given you. Do you see what just happened there? Peter says, God told me to come. Now, why did you send for me? And Cornelius responds, he says, God told me to send for you. Now, why are you here? <laughs> so it's kind of this standoff. And so Peter just kind of like, well, I guess I should just tell you the story because remember, Jesus commissioned his disciples to go out and tell others the story. And they've been sharing it with Jews. The, the gospel hasn't really gone out to the Gentiles yet. But he just decides, well, I guess I'll tell him the story. So Peter says, uh, he tells him the story just like um, everything. Where's my notes here? Peter launches in the story of Jesus, including his death and his resurrection, and how everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sins through his name. Peter has said this before. He said this on the day of Pentecost. Everyone who believes in Jesus receives forgiveness of sin in his name because of what he's done. He tells the story of the cross. He tells the story of the empty tomb and the implications that, that Jesus took our place, paid for our sin, gave us eternal life, and anyone who believes in him. It's just that Peter has never before considered that the word anyone means anyone. And so as he's saying it, and before he gets a chance to add anything to it, he's not, he's not done speaking, but before he's, he finishes before he can add anything else, the Holy Spirit falls on this group that's gathered. And it happens, it manifests in such a way that it looks just like it did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. If you're not familiar with that story, in Acts chapter 2, there's a group of disciples, Jewish followers of Jesus, who are all waiting for Jesus. Jesus said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit upon you. Wait for that. And so they're all sitting there waiting. They don't really know what they're waiting for because they've never experienced it yet. But when it happens, when the Holy Spirit comes upon them, they begin speaking in tongues, speaking in languages that they don't know. And there's all kinds of foreigners gathered in Israel that day, and, 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 and they hear people proclaiming the gospel in their native tongue because people are speaking a language they don't even know. So it's a supernatural language. That very same thing happened that day to the Gentiles. This is Gentile Pentecost in Acts chapter 10. And Peter is just amazed by this. And he looks at the, the Jewish believers that he brought with him, and he goes, 
uh, I'm not sure what we should do now. Typically, people get baptized in the name of Jesus before the Holy Spirit is given to them. But if God's already giving the Holy Spirit, I guess we shouldn't withhold water baptism. And so they baptize them in the name of Jesus. Okay? And then they stay with him several days before they go home. And when they get back to Jerusalem, Peter is faced with criticism and resistance from Jewish Christians. Uh, They're known as the circumcision party. This is what they say. They say to Peter, you went to the home of uncircumcised Gentiles and you even ate with them. But Peter recounts the whole story, going back to his vision, going back to what happened with Joppa or with, uh, with Cornelius. And his opposition, the ones that are criticizing him for that, they have nothing to say for now till we get to our chapter today. I want to read a quote from author Rasul Berry. He says, By this point in history, many Jews felt their ethnicity and culture gave them not only a source of righteousness, meaning that they believed that the, the way they lived actually earned God's favor, not only gave them a source of righteousness as God's chosen people, but also an inherent superiority over the Gentiles. Many even recited a daily prayer, blessed are you, eternal God, who has not made me a Gentile. How do you think that sounds if you're a Gentile? Even those who followed Christ could not fathom that God would save Gentiles without somehow making them Jewish religiously and culturally. That's what's going on. That's the background for the story we're going to be in today. The second story is actually not so much a story. It's more of a report. We find it in Acts chapter 13. And we're going to flash forward from that moment when Peter went to Cornelius' house in, in Joppa or go in, in Caesarea. We're going to flash forward several years. It's not quite a decade. It's maybe seven or eight years. And the ripples of the gospel going out to non-Jewish people, to the Gentile world, have continued to ripple out. From that moment at Cornelius' house, from the moment of, of Gentile Pentecost, the gospel has continued to reach more and more people to where we get to Acts 13 and it says this. Um, now there were in the church at Antioch, this is a, a, a town a little further north, actually a city, the third largest city in the first century. Uh, now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers. There's Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tatriarch, and Saul. Okay, that's a brief report. It's easy to skim over. Like I've read Acts many times and just skimmed right through that. Yeah, 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 it's nice. I know Barnabas, I know Paul, the other guys that doesn't sound quite so familiar. A little bit of thoughtfulness though, and a little bit of unpacking this historically, what the implications are, is very helpful because of what Luke is trying to tell us. So um, let me just go through this name by name. He tells us that, first of all, of the leadership team there, there's Barnabas, who is a Cypriot Jew. Cypriot Jew means that he comes from the island of Cyprus. It's a Mediterranean island. That means he was not born and raised or cultured in Palestine or in Jerusalem or in Galilee. He actually comes from an island. How many of you know that island culture is different than mainland culture? Okay, so he's, he's a bicultural Jew. Simeon is called Niger. Niger's a Latin word meaning black or dark. So Simeon is a dark-skinned black African, specifically coming out of Central Africa. Okay, we're going to see two of these leaders come from Africa. Simeon comes from Central Africa, while Lucius of Cyrene comes from northeastern coast of Africa. Lucius of Cyrene, he's, uh, he's just west of Egypt. 
The people of Cyrene have what we would consider a more Middle Eastern or Arabic background. So two Africans, different backgrounds, one very dark-skinned, one more Arabic. Then we have Menaean, who is a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch. This is Herod Antipas, who we meet throughout the Gospels. He is the ruler in Galilee during the time of Jesus' ministry. And so this is his friend, his close childhood friend, who's grown up in the surroundings of power and the surroundings of politics. It means he's a man, he's an upper crust individual with social status and political influence. And then lastly, we have Saul. We know who Saul is. He's, he's a religious scholar. He's a religious intellectual. He's, uh, he's a, a Hebrew of Hebrews, highly educated Pharisee who trained under the greatly respected Gamaliel, which means this leadership team is incredibly diverse, shockingly diverse. It's multicultural. It's multi-ethnic. It's multi-class. And it's politically diverse in a way that was reflective of the city in which they lived. They lived in in Antioch, which was, again, it's the third largest city in the first century. So in this place where they lived, the leadership of the church actually is incredibly diverse. The church has come a long way from that moment when Peter had moral qualms about stepping into the home of a Gentile, when he was later criticized for even eating with a non-Jewish Christian. Not only are Jews and... Uh, and a diverse group of Gentiles now eating together, they're leading the church together. They're one spiritual family on mission together. They're doing life together. They're sharing the mission of Jesus together. And here's what happens in Antioch. Their surrounding community has never seen anything like that. The surrounding community of Antioch who's watching this thing play out, this, this new people group emerge, They've never seen such a diverse group of people coming together with such unity and with such purpose. They've never seen such a diverse group who's, of people whose identity is not their, it's not their race, it's not their culture, it's not their politics, it's not their class, it's their shared faith in Jesus. And the surrounding community doesn't have a category for that. This, this busts all of their categories. And so they're watching this thing play out in the middle of their, of their city, and, and, the, and the city of Antioch's going, what is this? Who are these people? What is this thing happening here? And because they don't have any category for it or a way to name it, they give it a new name, a name that they actually mean somewhat sarcastically. Any idea what it is? Christians. The surrounding community. Here's Acts uh, 11.26. And in Antioch the disciples were first called Christians by the surrounding community. Initially, a name that was, had, was kind of a, a name of degradation, kind of mockery, like these people are like little Jesuses, little Christs. And the church went, okay, we'll wear that label. And they embraced it. But initially, it came from a, a, from a wondering community going, this is different. This is different than anything that we've seen before. Those two stories from Acts form the background for today's passage in Galatians 2. Just with understanding those two stories, you can understand what happens in Galatians 2. Galatians 2, the story where we're going to pick up, happens within 10 years of that first story of Peter and Cornelius. Within 10 years is when this next story happens. We're going to pick up in 2.11. But when Peter came to Antioch, okay, same city, 
same community. Peter came to Antioch, I, meaning Paul, I had to oppose him to his face for what he did was very wrong. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterward, when some friends of James came, we find out in the book there, the circumcision party, maybe the same group that he was criticized by when he went to Cornelius' house. When he first arrived, he ate with the Gentile believers who were not circumcised. But afterwards, when some friends of James came, Peter wouldn't eat with the Gentiles anymore. He was afraid of criticism from these people who insisted on the necessity of circumcision. In this episode, Peter completely backpedals. He regresses from what God previously revealed to him at Cornelius' home. And Paul has a very strong and very public reaction to it. Paul tells us what was influencing Peter at this moment. He said it was fear of being criticized by other Christians whose opinion he cared about. He said he, he, he went back on, on a conviction that God had done in his heart, not because God had changed his heart or showed him something different, but out of fear of being criticized by fellow believers. These believers, these fellow believers were in fact wrong. It, we're not told that they're not Christians. We're told that they're not living out the gospel, that they are wrong. But in addition to being wrong, they're influential and they're loud and they're opinionated. Paul goes on to explain in this text in, two, in Galatians 2 why Peter's actions had to be confronted so publicly because they didn't just stay with Peter. They began rippling out very quickly. Listen to 2.13. As a result of Peter's actions, other Jewish believers followed Peter's hypocrisy. Even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. What's happening here in Antioch, this, this place that has been such a radical place of unified love of Jesus that has brought di different groups together with one purpose, one cause. What's happening? The radical unity, the good news of Jesus had forged in the city of Antioch that defied category, that embodied Jesus' promise to his disciples that the world will know you're my disciples by what? Your love for one another. Jesus cares deeply about how his followers treat one another and not just within the same homogenous groups. He said to the people, the world's going to know you're my disciples when they see something that busts all the categories, when they see something that breaks down all the dividing walls, when they see that, when they see you radically loving people that formerly would have been on the opposite sides of things, that's when they're going to know that you're my disciples. That will be one of my fingerprints on your life. That's what had been happening in Antioch. And with one action, Peter's compromising it all. The love that they had forged in Antioch was being fragmented and shattered. The message sent by Peter and now Barnabas and the other Jewish Christians as well went much deeper than just a minor offense or hurt feelings. It went to the very core of the gospel. Peter was sending a message that non-Jewish Christians were second class, that they were less than their Jewish brothers and sisters, that they were to be held at a distance unless they conformed to Jewish culture and Jewish ceremonial laws. This was taking a cultural value and practice and marrying it to the gospel in a way that said, if you don't practice these things and become like us, you're a lesser Christian. You're a lesser follower of Jesus unless you become like us. 
So listen to what Paul says when he confronts Peter on this issue. He says, when I saw that they were not following the truth of the gospel message, I said to Peter in front of all the others, since you, a Jew by birth, have discarded the Jewish laws and are living like a Gentile, why are you now trying to make these Gentiles follow the Jewish traditions? You and I are Jews by birth, not sinners like the Gentiles. Yet we know that a person is is made right with God in faith in Jesus Christ, not by obeying the law. And we've believed in Christ Jesus so that we might be made right with God because of our faith in Christ, not because we've obeyed the law. For no one will ever be made right with God by obeying the law. We've talked about this previously, that, that here's religion, all religion deals with two things, right standing with God and right living. Right? All religion deals with that at some capacity. It's at, all religion tries to ask the, answer the question, how do, how do I have good standing with God or the gods or you know, whatever's out there, this mysterious, you know. All, all religion tries to answer that question. Only the gospel says you, that, that the order is inverted, that God gives you right standing with him based on what Jesus has done at the cross and at the tomb out of love for you that he paid the price for your sin, that he died to give you new life, and that out of that comes right living. Today's passage doesn't deal with right living. Paul's not, he's not trying to talk to them about how they should live. He's going to get there later on in the book. We're not, we're not going to go there today. We're not going to say, okay, so is, is there a Christian lifestyle? Yes, there is. It just doesn't come before the gospel. It comes after. It's a response to the gospel. They're trying to put it in front. No one will ever be justified, meaning having right standing with God by the works of the law through right living. Galatians 2, 19 through 20, Paul says, for when I tried to keep the law, it condemned me. So I died to the law. I, I, I couldn't do it. I couldn't keep it perfectly. So I died to the law. I stopped trying to meet all its requirements so that I might instead live to God. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not mean, I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless, for if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. This is God's word. Those last two paragraphs are incredibly dense theology. Actually, very important theology. Countless books, countless Christian books have been written by theologians and pastors and, and Christian practitioners about the meaning of those words and the application of those verses. A doctoral theses have been, have been written about them. So we're not in any way going to unpack everything that that means this morning. But we are going to zero in on this one aspect of how true good news of Jesus brings an end to divisive tribalism. So we saw in our first story, let me just recap. We saw in our first story this morning how God ended divisive tribalism in the early church with the good news that salvation through faith is in Jesus alone. Salvation through faith is in Jesus alone. Through Peter and the other Jewish Christians, or though Peter and the other Jewish Christians connected their faith in Jesus to their cultural practices, to their preferences, God compelled them to let go I want you to hear this. God compelled them to let go of forcing Gentiles to become like them. 
We saw in our second story that setting aside the cultural, political, and racial divides of their day was a witness about Jesus to their community. To the community in Antioch, it was a witness about, this is something new happening here. This is something different. And you know what it resulted in? In in addition to a new name, Christians, you know what else it resulted in? Antioch is the most effective missional church in church history. In 2,000 years of church history, there is not a church that has had as much impact as the church in Antioch had. All the stories you read in Acts about the gospel going forth and reaching new places, all the missionary journeys that Paul took, those all came out of the church in Antioch. They were all sponsored by, supported by, led by, equipped by the church in Antioch. This is radical. So we saw in the second story about the witness about Jesus in their community. And now here in our Galatians story, Here's the sad thing. We see how easily the church can drift back into divisions that are contrary to the gospel. And it's no longer good news. Word gospel, what does it mean? It means good news. Paul says, I saw that Peter was living in a way that was contrary to the gospel. That's not good news. We saw that we are being called to, with Paul, to contend for a pure gospel. That we are only made right with God by faith in Jesus Christ. We saw in our third story how we're to contend for the pure and simple gospel so as to not put human barriers between people and coming to faith in Jesus. Let me summarize it this way. Maybe this puts it into more modern language for us. Divisive, so so the, the, the good news is that when we truly live the gospel, believe the gospel, receive the gospel, live the gospel, proclaim the gospel, when we tr- live the true one, it's an end to divisive tribalism. But the other side of that is the divisive tribalism is not good news. It is not the gospel. It's a distortion. That's what's called in Galatians 1. It's a distortion of the gospel. Peter's distancing himself from the Gentile Christians was a form of segregation. The impact on those Gentile believers was not unlike having segregated schools, water fountains, neighborhoods, seats on the bus. The message it sent is very much the same. Segregation by its very nature communicates one group as being preferred over the other, one group being better, one group being lesser. Divides people by external differences that are contrary to Jesus' intention for the church. And here's what it does. It does great violence to the message and the mission of the gospel. I want you to hear this, church, because the church in America, we need to hear this. Divisive tribalism does violence to the message and the mission of the gospel. So what? We studied Galatians. We looked at 10 years of church history early on, this little window of 10 years. What does it mean for us today? Today, I asked the application question this way. I just asked do we have practices that create segregation in our day that communicate either directly or indirectly that someone has to become like another group in order to have good standing with God? That if you're a true Christian, you conform to these external things. If you don't conform to these things, you're a lesser Christian, maybe not a Christian at all. 
I'd suggest that we do. I suggest we do have lots of ways we do that. Ours, unfortunately, aren't as simple and as, as tidy as it was in the first century. The first century, we could pin it down to three things that, that are all dealt with in the book of Galatians. It was circumcision. It was food laws, you know, clean and unclean food practices. And the last one is keeping Jewish holidays. We'll see that later in the book of Galatians. Those three things became the issues. In our day, there are countless issues we can divide over, aren't there? There's countless. To illustrate that, let me give you one last story. It's modern day. So we're going to flash forward 2,000 years from Antioch and Peter and Paul. A couple weeks ago, I was driving in traffic, and the vehicle in front of me had, uh, uh, was plastered with bumper stickers. Um, I, I, I didn't take a picture of it. Um, I was because I was driving. And I, later I thought, oh, I wish I would have got a picture of that. And actually, I'm glad that I didn't. Because I want us to ask the question, what are the bumper stickers we would put on our cars? Maybe, maybe you literally have bumper stickers. But if you put the causes on that you think are core to the, the mission of, of, of the gospel, what causes would you put on there? What are the bumper stickers you'd put on? So, but in the middle of all the bumper stickers on this car, there was one that stood out in particular. And it looked a little bit like this. Now, this isn't the actual sticker. This is a mock-up that Mitchell made for me. But this is what it said. It said, America needs to get back to Jesus. And it, it looks like a license plate. And the sticker was made to look like a license plate. But it wasn't a license plate. It was just a sticker. And it was on the vehicle. And then orbiting around it were a whole bunch of other stickers. There were... There were political causes. There were political candidates. There were social causes. There were all kinds of things that, and, and here's the thing, because we're in traffic, I can't have a conversation with the driver of the vehicle and ask, well, what exactly do you mean by this? So there was no opportunity for some sort of nuanced conversation about, you know, what are you trying to say? But the implication was really clear. That if America does in fact get back to Jesus, which that's a whole other conversation right there, but if America gets back to Jesus, it's going to look like all of these things. And I thought about, our, I thought about the fact we were going to be in Galatians and how people were trying to, to put their social beliefs, their political beliefs, their cultural beliefs on other people. And Paul fought against it. And I thought about the impact of some of those. And you know what? And some of those, I'm not going to name them all because I, I actually just want us to ask the question about ourselves. I'll name one just to though, because it just stood out to me. There was, America needs to get back to Jesus, and then there was a sticker that was advocating to protect our right to have assault rifles. It wasn't just a generic Second Amendment sticker, it was assault rifles. And I thought, America needs to get back to Jesus, and that means protect our right to assault rifles. I think you're reading about a different Jesus than I read about in the Gospels. Like, when I read his vision of the kingdom of God... Well, it looks quite a bit different. It actually looks like turning the other cheek. It looks like blessed are the peacemakers. I thought about a conversation that I witnessed between here on, here on campus between two people. It was actually a, a living room conversation. We used to have this gathering where we would sit down and talk about topics face-to-face -face so we could actually hear one another's stories. Instead of just dealing with sound bites and bumper stickers, we would sit down and hear each other. It was a conversation about Second Amendment. 
And I listened to somebody who was defending the Second Amendment, a Christian, fellow believer, and somebody who was concerned about it and concerned about assault rifles specifically. And I heard a mom describe how she sends her kids to school wondering if they're going to come home or if they're going to face a school shooting. She said, when I grew up, we had, we had uh, you know, things like we had earthquake drills. Now we have active shooter drills. Now, I think about that mom. She's a Christian. She was able to have a, a nuanced conversation with a fellow believer, and they both learned from each other. They both, they both, because they realized this, this isn't core to our faith. This is core to our politics. It's, it's core to our social policy. This is not core to our faith. So they had a nuanced conversation about it, and it was beautiful. But I think about somebody who's not yet a follower of Jesus following that car in traffic, and what message does it send to them about what it means to be a follower of Jesus? And what change would they have to make in their life in order to become a follower of Jesus? I wore my I voted sticker this week. Did you see that? Did you notice it? I did vote. I think Christians should wholeheartedly vote. I think we should be very active in our... Oh, are you trying to zero in on it? Here. There you go. It's the same one you got. I'm not saying Christians shouldn't vote. I'm saying there's no candidate we can put next to Jesus and say this, this candidate or this party or this policy is the one that every Christian should endorse and vote for. We can't. I won't tell you who I voted for. I won't tell you, be, and, and I did it with mixed emotions. Sometimes it's like, well, this is the lesser of two evils. I'll choose this candidate. I find myself in that situation sometime. You know what Jesus said? Jesus said to his disciples when they tried to act, they tried to, you know, Peter grabs a sword, goes to defend Jesus. Peter says, Jesus said, Peter, put away your sword. My kingdom is not of this world. My kingdom doesn't expand and extend in the world through the typical ways that people do things. Church, our hope is not in politics. As, as citizens of heaven... Our hope is not in politics. As citizens of the earth, we should be involved. We should vote. We should vote a spirit-led conscience. But we can't put our spirit-led conscience on somebody else because two people can differ for very different reasons, different experiences, different convictions. And so we can't add that. One time the Pharisees were trying to pin Jesus down on his politics. You know what he said? He gave him a really unsatisfying answer. I listened to a whole message that Tim Keller did on this. He gave him a very unsatisfying answer. He said, you know what? Render to Caesar what's Caesar's and render to God what's God's. Which was not a position that said he didn't tell them to abdicate themselves from society. He didn't say, you must pay your taxes or don't pay your taxes. He said, give to Caesar what's Caesar's and give to God what's God's. Don't and make a distinction between the two. There's a reason this morning that you got up and you either came to church or you logged on and you never thought, I'm guessing you never thought about circumcision or Jewish holidays 
or about clean and unclean foods. You may have, in fact, eaten bacon this morning. Do you know why? That never entered into your mind to, to question whether you should do that as somebody who's about to attend a church service about worshiping Jesus? It's because the early church contended for the truth, because Paul confronted Peter, because other Christians who've gone before us chose to end the device of tribalism and come together around one thing, around the person and work of Jesus, you came to church today without worrying about those things. But I wonder what messages we're sending to the world around us about whether or not they can come to Jesus and what it would cost them, what they would have to sacrifice in matters of conscience in order to become a follower of Jesus. Paul makes it really clear. One thing, Jesus' work on the cross Jesus' victory at the tomb, he did that out of love for us. And through faith in him, we can have that life and we can be a new creation. Now, that new creation begins to ripple out and it absolutely does begin to affect our lifestyles, our belief systems. And what you'll see is where, regardless of where people stand on a political spectrum, when they become a believer, they begin to move somewhere on the political spectrum. They begin to move on a social spectrum. But there's not one way that's Jesus. Church, I want to challenge us, myself included, that the way we proclaim Jesus to the world can't be bumper stickers or yard signs. It has to be our lives lived out out of unearned love that is freely received from Jesus and generously expressed to others. That's radical. That sends a message to a world that's riddled by divisiveness, that's watching. If we want to live on mission for Jesus, we say, we gather around one thing, the body and blood of Jesus. We're going to end this morning by receiving communion. And so uh, if you're here on campus, you probably received communion as you came in. If you didn't, you can raise your hand and one of our ushers will bring it around and make sure you have it. So um, if you don't have communion, would you go ahead and raise your hand? Um, and if you're online, hopefully uh, you have access to the elements of communion. Um, if you don't, don't make it a crisis. You can use, you can use uh, bread and crackers or wine or juice. But as we do this, I'm going to go back and I want to read the final paragraph out of this passage over us. And I want you to remember this. What is this? What does this represent? This is our common union. Our union is not that we are all same political party. Our union is not that we all voted for the same candidate on Tuesday. Some of us are disappointed by the Results of Tuesday, some of us are relieved by the, the things that happened on Tuesday. Some will be devastated in November. Some will be elated. That's kingdom of this world. Our hope isn't in those things. Our hope is in Jesus Christ, that he's going to finish the work he, begin, he began. And so we have a common union. And this is what we stand on. Christ and Christ alone. I'm just going to read the passage, and then I'll let you receive communion um, as you're ready. You can receive both the bread and, and the wine together, juice. 
But I just want to read the passage. And then I'm just going to make some space. I'm going to invite you to just respond to God. You know, Peter drifted from a conviction that God had given him in just a few short years in a moment where he was afraid of what others would think of him. He drifted from a pure gospel and he had to be called back to it. I think the Holy Spirit wants to call some of us to a pure gospel. Some, it might be for the very first time. You may be here as, a, as somebody who's spiritually curious, like those people who'd gathered at Cornelius's house. And you're wondering, is this Christian thing, is it, is it just another political movement? Is it just another social cause? Is it just another attempt to, to legislate the things that we think people should do? Or is it something, maybe you got to hope that maybe there's something deeper, something bigger, something life-changing that busts all the categories. And I'm here to tell you, yes, there is. The gospel is so much more than a political party or a candidate or a cause or a lifestyle. It is Jesus Christ, God himself who came and gave himself for us. That's what we receive in faith today. You might be receiving it for the very first time today. And you may not understand it completely, but if it sounds like something that you want, that Jesus died in your place in order to grant you eternal life, you can take that for the first time today. And if you do that for the first time, we'd love to pray with you afterwards. We actually are going to have some words for prayer this morning. The, the very prayer team, that, including the School of Kingdom Ministry that we prayed over this morning, in addition to the rest of our prayer team, has been just asking God, God, are there specific things that you want to do this morning, needs that you want to address in our, in our gathering. So we'll put those words up on the screen here. And if this is you specifically, um, if, if any of those words for prayer describe you, I want to invite you when we're done here to stick around, to just come up here underneath either screen for prayer. If you're joining online, you can post to our, to whatever, um, platform you're in, you can post there and ask for prayer, or you can send a, a prayer to our, our prayer email. And if you're receiving communion for the first time, we'd love to pray with you this morning. Having said that, if you hold the communion in your hand, let me read this. My old self has been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. So I live in this earthly body by trusting in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not treat the grace of God as meaningless. For if keeping the law could make us right with God, then there was no need for Christ to die. This is God's word.
Lord Jesus, we receive the provision that you won for us, that you won for all mankind, indeed for all of creation, that you won both at the cross and at your empty tomb. We thank you for the eternal life that you made available, that you unleashed in our world and that you have promised to finish. God, would you continue by your transforming grace to make us new, to make us a people who are owned by you and occupied by you, who are zealous to live in a way that is faithful to your gospel, that doesn't distort the gospel to to fellow believers or to those that are not yet convinced. Would you purify us, Lord? Give us eyes to see ourselves. Give us eyes to see things that we may have intended well, but that are doing damage to others. God, would you heal our fragmented community? And God, may we be a people like the Church of Antioch who have such a radical encounter with your love that it transforms who we are, how we operate in a way that the watching world doesn't even know what to do with. May we not just be another microcosm of the way that the culture is doing things, but may we be a counterculture, a kingdom culture. Empowered by you, transformed by you, shaped by you, sent by you, united in you. For your glory, for our joy, and for the sake of our world. Amen. Amen. If you would like prayer this morning, our team would love to pray with you. And so again, uh, if you saw yourself in the things that are on the screen, or if you need prayer for anything else, uh, again, you're welcome to to come up uh, front. We'd be glad to pray with you. Apart from that, church, go make the invisible God visible. Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.